week of April 11th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 536, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And at the Jasper Mall in Jasper, Alabama, I'm Michael Gills. I have no idea why you're in Jasper, Alabama. Oh, wait, you actually are in Alabama. So why are you at the mall? I'm at the Jasper Mall because that is the location of a documentary film called Jasper Mall. It's available on Amazon right now. I watched it. It's a good, solid documentary about a declining mall. They've got one anchor store left. Eh, things aren't going. One of the domino players dies. And stores are shutting down. It's a tough, tough thing, but it's a fun, eccentric little movie showing, you know, the life of a mall. And it's one of the millions of films I've been watching in the last few months, getting ready for the IRAs. My annual IRA group is That's meeting right. next this Saturday. The that the you know the week people are listening will be voting on the best films of the year right before the Oscars happen. So I've been watching a ton of stuff, and Jasper Mall is a good movie. It's not on my actual top five, but it's it's a good film. So is Time, which is playing on Amazon Prime and YouTube for free this week. So if you haven't seen Time, a documentary about a woman waiting for her husband to get out of jail. Uh, it's very artfully made. That's the most interesting thing about it. The score, the look of it, how they shot and did it. And it's an interesting topic. So I'm looking forward to all of that. What about you? How are you doing? Well, you know, I have been following this whole thing with Prince Philip, you know, uh, who, who passed away at the age of 99. He died. Yes. Yeah, he died. Yeah. So as I'm reading all of the obituaries and all of the stories about this, uh, about how he met Queen Elizabeth of, of, of England, Queen Elizabeth II of England. I'm like, oh my goodness, they met when when she was 13 and he was 18 and he went off to war and then he kind of kept the family together. All of the, the the drama and I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, somebody should write all this down and like make a movie out of it. You know, there's probably enough there for a whole television series. God, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> You're supposed to remind me that the crown was made. Yeah. As I'm reading all of this, I'm like, oh man, this sounds like, oh wait, isn't this actually what the crown is about? And then I thought, I should probably watch that show. <laughs> it's one of a gazillion things about the royal family. That's true. It's been, yeah. I thought you'd be talking about Endeavor. Endeavor lost $625 million in 2020. So they announced, oh, we're going to go public. Why not? I think hey, you know I, what? I think you and I should go public. <laughs> you know what? If that's the case, then we're going to do quite well because if you're, you know, Uber or Lyft, a- any one of these companies that doesn't make money, like Amazon for years made zero money, right? And yet it, it Overall, stock price went they higher. Were, they were making money in individual areas and kept expanding into new businesses. So they were very profitable in the book selling business and other parts. They just kept right. hugely profitable in, you know, web services. So, you know, they, they are making money and now they yeah, are. Now yeah. Right, yeah, but yeah, but but all of these other companies they don't make any money and their price keeps going up. So I think you're right. We should definitely go public. We will be the most valuable stock on the Nas, the Nine, the the, the Tootsie, Footsie. I don't know what so any one of those exchanges. It's been a busy two weeks. Are we having a show next week? Yeah, why wouldn't we? Well, who knows? It's your schedule. <laughs> That's cool. We're not having Luke Bryan on American Idol because he has COVID. I hope he gets better. But Paula Abdul. His guest hosting on American Idol, that's very exciting for me. That's happened already by the time people hear the show. Uh, the Oscars is going to have 15 presenters hosting. It takes 15 people to host, host the Oscars, including Zendaya. And, of course, there's Indiana Jones news. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, she was punching up the script for the next James Bond. Now she's joined the cast of the new Indiana Jones movie. I assume she'll be playing his caregiver. <laughs> 
<laughs> you mean you mean Indiana Jones caregiver? That's exact. Yeah, it's a, of course I mean Indiana Jones is caregiver. Do, do you think that they could ever recast that role? Of like course, they did absolutely. with James Bond. James Bond was recast, obviously. They, they already did. They had Sean Patrick Flannery pay him very well on television. They had River Phoenix having the sort of the whip being passed to him in the last, you know, in Indiana Jones in the last crusade where he played a really great young indie, which I think is the way to go rather than, you know, obviously you're not going to have a 70 year old man, but to give it a little fresh spin, I think before the war, between the wars, a younger indie, that's the way to go. Maybe well, they also them. tried with Shia LaBeouf and that obviously is not going right. to work. Well, he's older now, and and he didn't he didn't get great reviews. But River did great. Sean Patrick Flannery did great. Other people will carry the whip, but nobody can do what you do, which is to tell us what we're going to talk about this week. Go for it. Well, okay. Uh, first, I should I should let you know that I just got past a message here. Uh, River Phoenix is unavailable to star in any new Indiana Jones movie. What a shame. Yes. Yes. But this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are loving WrestleMania this week. And no, not the pay-per-view sporting entertainment event. I don't know what, what you'd call it. Though, Michael, you're rooting on Bad Bunny. I know that. No, we're talking about the Conejito sm- Malo. Conejito Malo. I have no idea what you're talking about. Bad Literally, Bunny. I- Conejito Malo. Okay. Oh, okay. Yes, I see. Uh, well, we're, we're really talking about the SmackDown known as Godzilla versus Kong. Another big weekend worldwide. And a relatively huge opening in the United States allowed everyone to heave a huge sigh of relief. Does this mean big blockbuster movies can open day and date and score big, even if they're available online via a streamer? Uh, no, it does not. <laughs> day and date for 10 polls might not be here to stay, but what about private screenings? Now, award season continues with the BAFTAs, SAG, and the DGA. They all named their winners. Once again, we were not named. But we'll, we'll break it down for you. We'll tell you who won. On Inside Baseball, we'll take a look at politics because apparently if you want ratings, you got to talk about politics these days, right? I mean, uh-huh. oh, yeah. I, I know, Michael, when we talk about politics, it makes you happy, but it gives Hollywood agita. Now, agita is the Latin word for, no, just kidding. Uh, agita, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, do you say agita or agita? Agita, I believe. Yeah, agita, I, I say the same. Uh, well, look, whether it's China cracking down on rep- repressed minorities or Georgia deciding, you know, the whole voting thing is totally overrated when it actually comes to elections. Hollywood is really being forced to take sides, and it is not happy about it. <laughs> of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. And based on the number of emails I received over the weekend, I Uh-oh. know... That Michael was scraping and scratching and clawing and mining and digging for all the numbers everywhere in the world. That's true. And we did get some info from Comscore. They've started their email newsletter to industry folk. They're still not posting online, but it's a start. It helps. So we're looking at box office around the world for the weekend in April 11th. Last week, of course, Godzilla vs. Kong opened overseas. This week it opened in North America for the second week in a row. It is the number one movie in the world. This week it made $73 million. It's now at $350 million worldwide. It's now, I believe, the biggest, op- biggest grossing film in North America during the COVID era. No film has opened up to and grossed more money, so that's a good sign. Uh, hopefully, it'll hit $100 million in the U.S. We'll see how it does. $358 million worldwide. So clearly, you know, this is a movie that needs to make 
what, $800, $900 million to break even by our rough metric that we have. Uh, We have no idea how it did on uh, HBO Max, but we believe at least 3.6 million homes watched at least five minutes of Godzilla versus Kong on HBO Max in North America. Now, they may have watched it for five minutes and said, yeah, this is pretty dumb. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, also, said, this is awesome. <laughs> also, uh, you know, for instance, uh, I know people who watched the film uh, at home on Friday, the day it was released for them, and they never in a million years would have paid to go to a movie theater and watch that movie. So that's not lost revenue for Warner Brothers. Well, it is also, but it's a, you can't, you cannot draw any conclusions from Godzilla versus Kong amidst a pandemic? Uh, let's see. No. No, you yeah. can't. I, and I think for people to do so would be silly. Well, I don't, I don't mean, mean to be mean, but Jeff Bach of Exhibitor Relations said it proves that when given the choice, no matter the cost associated, audience will still frequent cinemas. That's true. But then he said, the streaming component is not the theater-killing event like many in exhibition have prophesized. That's not necessarily true. I think if you're paying $15 a month for HBO Max and life is normal, do you want to pay 40 or $60 to take the family to see Kong versus Godzilla? That's kind of a heavy lift. Right yeah. now, people are desperate. They really want to see movies. They want to get out of the house. They're feeling safer. They got their vaccine. They can finally go to a half-empty theater and watch Kong beat up Godzilla. Great. They're willing to do that. I think that's, I think that's the most you can draw from that, that it's a weird situation. But I have to believe, long-term, a big popcorn movie sure people will still go but a lot of people if they subscribe to netflix and it's playing in theaters and netflix they're just going to turn to netflix because you know you just don't want to pay money when you've already paid for it and look at this hbo max has 36 million subscribers in north america in the u.s that's not a huge amount yet netflix has 73 million so but let me ask you this because i uh-huh. know and i know i've we've totally like somehow well, no, the part, the this, is the film, this is the film to talk about, you know. Okay, so let's talk about Netflix for a second. They paid $439 million uh, for not one, but two different sequels to Knives Out. So here's my question. If I'm a Netflix subscriber, right, I've got my Netflix app, could I not work with movie theater owners and say, look, we're going we're gonna to premiere this day and date, but if somebody shows up and they're a Netflix subscriber and they show you their app, and there's maybe something special on the app that gets them in for free, could they get in for free? In other words, do you think movie theater um, owners would say, all right, the Netflix people- We'll take the popcorn sales. Yeah, exactly. They they might. There's no reason not to think of that. There might be people willing to do that. Uh, You know, why not think outside of the box? They they did a lot this week, but you know, that deal- that's like how many? How much money was it a minute? I forget. I wrote it down somewhere. Like you, know, you figure the two movies are two hours long each. Or it's like a hundred and ten million dollars per hour. That's how much it is. <laughs> yeah, That's a hundred and ten million dollars per hour. I I still would prefer to have six or eight series launched or ten and see what happens rather than buy two movies. But they've crunched the numbers and they, you know they have to also pay for the movies out of that and the rest of the cast. You know, they're saying, oh, these people are going to make 80, 100 million dollars after. It's like, well, yeah, but everybody else in the cast, it's a pretty starry cast. It's going to be like, hey, you got how much to make this movie? I want I want good money, too. You know, the original cost 40 million dollars. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of money. Netflix also, of course, made another deal. They signed a licensing deal with Sony. Two hundred and fifty million dollars a year for four years. That's one billion dollars. They will be the first stop for Sony movies coming out in twenty twenty two and beyond. 
They'll also get some older titles, part of franchises when they're available that they can put on Netflix, like Bad Boys and Jumanji. They'll also be on Netflix. They get more windows as the titles spread out to other services. So it goes into theaters, then it comes to Netflix and or on demand, and then it comes maybe to premium cable and then back to Netflix and then basic cable, then back to, you know, it's going to be there. And it all depends on each movie, but they also get first chance to secure straight to streaming titles. Previously, Sony had a deal with stars that began in 2006. So what does that mean? Does that, is that anything other than just a normal deal, right? It's a licensing deal. HBO used to do them. Showtime used to do them. Now F Netflix has their pocketbook open and they're willing to pay money to have all those movies come to their streaming service first. It means licensing is not dead. You don't have to make everything on your own. No, licensing is almost like the new output deal. So output deals would be like, you know, HBO would say, okay, you have an output deal with us, uh, Warner Brothers. I'll just use Warner Brothers as an example. So, uh, and maybe that's a bad example because they're actually owned by the same people. So let's use Paramount. Paramount, you have an output deal with us. So for every movie that that you give us, we'll give you a certain percentage of, of, the, of the box office gross or a certain amount, a predetermined amount. And therefore you could, as a studio or a production company, company go and finance your movies based on if i make the movie mr banker uh i have hbo they're going to give me x amount and then i have the, the hbo of germany and they're going to give me y amount and then you could cobble together your money well now licensing is that well now paramount of course will go to paramount plus yes exactly <laughs> that's true and amazon they picked up a chris pratt film the tomorrow war they've already had coming to america and they've got an upcoming tom clancy flick no remorse with michael b jordan so these people are where the money and this action is at they are acting fast but theaters still have life in them you made an interesting suggestion about netflix what about this little detail godzilla versus kong had ten thousand private screenings in north america on opening weekend meaning people paid Two, three hundred dollars or whatever to reserve a room, probably the smallest room in the theater for a private event. Anybody that they, they could bring X number of people in. And of course, you got to pay for popcorn and stuff. But they had private screenings. They made, you know, that's that's kind of interesting. Does that sound like something that maybe people will keep doing now that they've tried it? Maybe most people had never done it. And now they've done it. Hey, that's pretty easy. That's not so bad. Will that, you know, for earlier off time screenings, does that seem something like might catch fire and stay part? Or is that just a, a COVID pandemic, you know, blurt? Well, uh, a couple things. There's so much to discuss there because. First of all, if you look at AMC and Cinemark, uh, Regal, of course, was closed for most of the pandemic. But if you look at Cinemark and, 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 uh, AMC, they made most of their money in the fourth quarter through private cinema rentals. Well, of course. So well, nobody was going to the movies. Of course they did. Right. And they, of course, could show uh, like a, a handful of movies that, uh, you know, some some catalog titles that the studios were offering up. You know, Paramount basically offered everything up. Uh, Disney offered certain titles. Universal offered other titles. The whole MonsterVerse, I think, was there. And the, the Fast and Furious franchises were available. Uh, but Private cinema rentals is definitely something that, one, was here before, but it was done for like birthday parties or corporate events or things such as that. Now, there is some thinking that this is actually going to continue beyond the COVID pandemic, that they will take, as you say, the smaller movie theaters and kind of reserve them for these, you know, you, you give us $300, you can invite 25 of your friends. Well, when you start dividing that up, well, now all of a sudden you're not paying $15 a ticket, you're paying, oh, now I'm only paying $10 a ticket. So there's that. Also in China, the whole idea of private cinemas, well, they're, they're, there's about 10,000 of them. And I mean that 
Right, yeah, number people, they have like a little living room prep setup. You got a big exactly. screen in a living room. It's bigger than your TV screen, but it's like a private screening room, like you would go to for a film reviewer. So it's like a Correct. small room with 40 or 60 or 80 seats. You get your little screening room, they pop in your movie when you want. Yeah. So this is that equivalent to that. It's a lot more elaborate, but it's it's the same idea. You're right. It's been happening all over the world and now it's come to the US. Back to the charts. The number one movie around the world is Godzilla vs. Kong. It made $73 million this week. And number two is a movie that opened up last week in China. It's Sister. It's a Chinese drama about a young woman who has to decide whether to continue with her career or take care of her little brother now that their parents have tragically died. Uh, tearjerker drama. Also about you know the preference for boys over girls, that, that historic Un unhappy preference for boys where they want a boy not a girl that they'll you know and that, that plays into the gender inequality in china plays into that storyline i'm not sure what it made last week um it's at a hundred million dollars now i think it's it's at 33 million dollars this week so it's it made 33 million dollars this week i believe and it's at a hundred million dollars worldwide it is in a few other territories beyond china i think and i think it made about 15 million dollars last weekend well, no, it had to make a lot more than that because it only made $33 million this week. So it was at $67 million as of the end of last week. I um, just didn't capture every territory that it opened up in. So uh, that's why I had trouble with that film. It's at $100 million now. It's a big hit. It's doing well. Mortal Kombat made money. It opened up in some overseas territories. It's the first new movie we have opening up this week. We have some from new from last week. It made $11 million. That Japanese anime film, Shin Evangelion, that's at $9 million this week. The Bob Odenkirk thriller, Nobody, that made $8 million. A very poorly reviewed uh, new edition of The Monkey King, the classic Chinese tale that gets told again and again, like Robin Hood and King Arthur. Well, that movie made $5 million this week. It's at $12 million uh, total. So it opened up last week to a modest $7 million. Now it's down to $5 million. Not doing great. But Hi Mom is doing great. Where's the Hollywood remake? Go back in time and secure the rights, people. It made $4 million this week. It's at $825 million worldwide. Tom and Jerry hit $100 million worldwide. The Unholy was a film that came out for Easter weekend, a you know a faith-based horror flick. That's at $7 million total. There's another film, a Chinese drama called The 11th Chapter. I forgot to figure out what that's about. That's at $8 million total, so that's pretty nominal money. Ray oh, I know what that's about. It's it's about uh, what happens after the tenth chapter. Actually, <laughs> that's better than your that's better than your crown joke. Uh, Raya, <laughs> Raya and the Last Dragon is about to pass a hundred million dollars worldwide. Peter Rabbit two, The Runaway. It's no Paddington two. Let's not get crazy here, but it is getting better reviews than the original Peter Rabbit, and uh, it's doing okay in a few modest territories. It made three million dollars this week and set ten million. Then we have four million four movies that made about a million bucks. Voyagers opened up. It's this sci-fi thriller that got very poor reviews. Chaos Walking with Tom Holland, one of my favorite actors. It keeps trudging along, but it's not doing well and it's not going to have the two sequels it called for. That's at $19 million. Minari keeps making money, one of the best films of the year. That's at $11 million. There's a universal slasher flick that opened up overseas in some territory. That made another million bucks. And Avatar continues to make money, another million dollars. That's at $2 billion. $845 million worldwide. So that's a lot of money. But we do have some good news. What's going on in LA, Sperling? You've had good last week and this week. We've got a lot of people turning the lights back on, don't we? 
Yes, I turned my lights on before we began because I wanted to be able to see my notes here. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. oh, by the way, movie theaters are now up to 50% capacity. So mm-hmm. it started out as 25%. Now it's 50%. We cannot vaccinate people fast enough. I mean, it's You get a vaccination. Re- you get a vaccination. It's unbelievable how quickly they're going. Yeah, Canada's not doing well. They're at 15% of adults rather than we're at 30%. And I'm, I'm, I'm shocked because they have a good healthcare system. So I'm, there's a lot of complicated reasons why that's happening, but uh, hopefully they will catch up soon. But in June 15th, California will end colored tier restrictions. And if you're in California, you know what that means. It'll be back to business as usual. This is all assuming vaccinations continue to increase and the numbers stay down. However, mask restrictions, masks will remain in place. You got to keep wearing your mask. But that hasn't stopped people from making an announcement. Universal Studios LA is opening up this month in April. Indoor concerts with limited capacity are starting up. And in Vegas, the Electric Daisy Carnival is coming back in May. Uh, a little soon, I think, maybe. Yeah, it's a little early for I that. Don't, I don't care what kind of you know social distancing you have. That doesn't seem like a good idea. The Hollywood Bowl reopens in July. Sony Pictures and Amazon Falls are opening a theme park in Thailand in the fall. Uh, tickets on sale in the UK for theater. Theaters going on sale for shows, performances in June and July, like Hamilton, Mary, Pop- Mary Poppins, and Harry Potter. Broadway has tickets on sale, mostly for the fall. We're not quite there yet, though there have been off-Broadway and some specialized stuff happening with severe audience restrictions. So a lot of things are starting to come back online. I feel like they're a few months too early. You know, yeah. let's get to June where everybody can be vaccinated and then look at the fall and say, okay, let's, you know, they're all like, all right, we're back. <laughs> well, Robert Plant is playing it safe. You know, he's, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, front man there. And uh, he said, look, I- I'm not, I'm a person of a certain, certain age, uh, you know, I've, and uh, I'm going to go out on tour. So if you want to buy tickets for my upcoming show in September, uh, that's great. Uh, by by September, I mean September of 2022. By the way, uh, <laughs> so that's, that's that's more like it. He is 72, so good for him. So yeah, a lot of people are delaying their concerts to the fall or next week because they can't do 50% capacity. You know, you well, can- also you know, the reality is the reason that that California is getting rid of the tiered, the colored, you know, tiers, in part is because it's a way to force the hand of school districts. And when I say school districts, I mean teachers unions. There's been a bit of a kerfuffle, especially in Los Angeles, where the union for the LA Unified School District teachers uh, keeps adding more demands before they, quote unquote, go back to in-person schooling. And at first they said, well, everybody has to be vaccinated. And so they vaccinated all the teachers. And then they said, oh, uh, and the kids too. And then they had to be told, well, you know, kids aren't actually, the kids can't get vaccinated. It's not approved for kids yet. They said, oh, uh, uh, we mean our, our spouses have to be vaccinated. So then they started doing it. And now their, their latest is that they need, they need child care. Otherwise, you know, and so it's like people are just so well, fed up with the teachers union that well, they're well, like, well, you know, what's unreasonable about that? How are they supposed to leave their children home alone? What would you like no, them no, to no. do? But, but that's, that's, in other what words, would you that, like them to do? What would you like them to do? I would like them to do what they were doing before the well, pandemic. There is, there is no child care to take your child to right now. So what would you like them to do? You need to, uh, you need to come up with a solution to help them. And plus, first of all, the, 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 the knowledge and information we have changes all the time. So if you have a position three months ago, it will change now because you have new information. So we're well, talking about the pandemic, and it's been a bad year for teachers. It's been a bad year for everyone, except the heads 
of movie theater chains. Now you would no, think- apparently if you lose a lot of money, yeah. you can actually get paid more. Like I said, Michael, we are in the wrong business. We need to lose more money so that we could get paid more. Well, we, we don't make money, but we certainly don't lose money, do we? Well, I don't know about that. I can't find my wallet, if that means anything. Cinemark CEO Mark Zarati's pay. Cinemark, the head of, of Cinemark. You think, wow, what a tough year. His pay rose to $7 million. Ah, okay, $6.9 million, but what's $100,000 among friends? That's a 10% pay raise from 2019 when he made $6.3 million. It's not so much money, not a huge raise, but... Amidst a pandemic, when your theaters were shut down, you fired or laid off tons of employees, everybody's struggling, you get a raise? Same thing for Viacom CBS CEO Bob Bakish. He earned $39 million in 2020. Pandemic? What pandemic? The departing CFO of Viacom earned $20 million. The incoming CFO earned $11 million just starting in August. (laughs) <laughs> so August, he's like, come on in. Sure, I'll do that job. You know, getting, you know, it's a tough year. Are you asking him to switch jobs? Gets $11 million. Makes sense out of that. Well, a, a couple of things. I think for Mark Zarati, I can really only speak to Mark Zarati because I don't really know what's going on with Bob Backish. Uh, but I can tell you, Zarati, I think he's getting credit for, one, keeping the, the whole <laughs> The whole thing open. Right, right, right. I mean, oh, you've had a horrible year. It's been really tough. Let's give them extra money. Or if you have a great year, you also get money. You make money no matter what. Your company loses money, makes money. Your company's struggling. Doesn't matter what's going on. The CEO makes money. Oh, you had a really tough year there, Mark. I mean, good God. We got to give, we got to recognize the great job he did keeping them open. Ah, God bless you. <laughs> He's doing God's work, keeping this company afloat. That used to be the job of a CEO. Not to go out of business. Now you get rewarded well, he, for it. I, I think he's also, uh, he, he found more money to keep the-, the Tons uh, of people the have lost their jobs or been out of work for six to eight months. That is not the year the head of the company should get a raise. He yeah, might well, even I take a big pay cut of his total pay. Yeah. I wonder if there were bonuses for things like, hey, cut the deal with Universal, because he did cut a deal with Universal on Windows, uh, or hey, you know- find us a certain amount of financing to keep the the doors open and there's a bonus in there for you. I don't know. I don't know you know why all I mean you're right. It, it it's it looks bad. It's bad optics. It doesn't look bad. It's wrong. Like look bad means well, it's fine. It just, you know, people might take it the wrong way. It's a wrong thing to happen, but there's no control over the board of directors. They're all friends of each other. It's ridiculous. It's a rigged game. He makes money no matter what. And if he gets fired, he'll get a big golden parachute. So, you know, it can't go wrong. Maybe he gets bonuses when uh, movies like at, at Viacom, when they win awards. It's award season, is it? What happened at the BAFTAs? That's the British Oscars. Yes. Uh, a lot of people uh, talked with funny accents. Okay. <laughs> so that's number one. It's a cup of tea. Uh, uh, number two, uh, Nomadland was the big winner. They won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Cinematography, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Best Director, First Time a Woman is, <laughs> has won. Oh, at the BAFTAs? Oh, I'm not sure about that, but that's great to see. Promising Young Woman won the Best British Film, so that's cool. Another Round, that won Best International Film. My Octopus Teacher won the Best Doc, and Soul won Best Animated Film. The acting awards sort of came like you might expect. Francis McDormand, Anthony Hopkins, people from Judas and the Black Messiah, and, uh, and uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, to the point where people said, gee, these seem so lockstep with what we're expecting. Maybe that will happen at the Oscars. But then... The Sags threw us a curveball, didn't they? What, with the, uh, was it Chicago 7, right? That's right. 
Yeah, they they won like the I guess best film cast. I've always kind of wondered like, okay, so how does they don't have a best film, but I guess they have a best film they cast. They're the best cast of a film. That's their yeah, that's their yeah. equivalent to the best picture award. So yeah, Chicago Seven won that, and all the acting awards were won by people of color: Viola Davis, Chadwick Boseman, and so on and so forth. Nomadland, however, wasn't competing against the Trial of the Chicago Seven. It wasn't nominated for best cast. Perhaps they didn't like to see non-actors in all those roles. You know, a lot of the people in Nomadland are real people, people who were interviewed for the book that it's based on, and they were playing themselves. Maybe the actors were like, uh, we don't like that trend. <laughs> not a good thing. We want actors doing acting, not real people. Uh, but Netflix had a great night at the SAG Awards. They dominated with your show, The Crown, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, all winning big. So that's a curveball, though there are many examples you can give, starting with, I think, last year, where, like, you know, uh, 1917 was winning some awards, and then Parasite ended up winning the Oscar. Uh, or, or, like, the year Roma won everything, and then in the end it was Green Book. <laughs> was, I, don't, I don't think Roma won the SAG Award, but... Oh, but, I don't know. That's maybe, yeah. maybe not, yeah. But everything came back to normal from the DGA Awards. The Directors Guild of America stuck with the frontrunner, Nomadland. The director, Chloe Zhao, got to look up her pronunciation again. She won Best Director of a Film. She's only the second woman in history to win that award, Catherine Bigelow being the first for The Hurt Locker in 2008. Sound of Metal won Best Film Debut, so that's still got some action, and uh, they're both very good movies. So, you know, it looks like Nomadland is, is chugging along. It certainly looks like Chadwick Boseman is a strong possibility to win Best Actor, but we'll have to see, right? Yeah, I mean, I wonder. Um, you know, the whole thing about Daniel Kaluuya being uh, nominated and winning these uh, Best Supporting Actor, it's called Judas and the Black Messiah. His, his, the character he plays is literally in the title. Well, but he's, not, he's definitely supporting. He's supporting who? Lakeith, Judas. Judas is the, is the lead character. Really? It's all, uh, have you seen the film? It's all about Lakeith Stein. How do you say his name? Lakeith Stanfield. Lakeith thought- Stanfield. It's all about him from beginning to end. He is, he's, if there was another male to pick for a co-lead, it would be Daniel's character. But he is, he's, he's his supporting role. There's he's no got other- solo scenes with the, with the, the love interest. There's no, there's no other. There's, the lead is Lakeith. And everybody else is supporting. I think that's a film with one lead, just like Nomadland. Francis McDormand is the lead. Uh, Daniel Strathairn, uh, David Strathairn is not a co-lead. He's a supporting role. Everybody else is supporting. I think that's not a, a, I don't think they're playing games with categories there. Uh, you could argue that he was a co-lead, but I, you know, the woman has a lot of, the, the love interest of him has a lot of screen time too. I, I think they're both supporting, but it's dominated yeah, by mean, the Keith. That's his story from beginning the- to end. When Kaluuya describes the film, and when he described it on Saturday Night Live, he said it's a uh, biography of the the uh, Black Panther leader Fred Hampton. Well, well he plays Fred it, Hampton. It's not about Fred Hampton. It's not a biography of Fred Hampton. It's about a man who who was a government informant who entered the Black Panthers, grew to uh, respect Fred Hampton and the work they were doing, but betrayed them. It's Judas. It's it's about Judas. He's at the beginning of the film. He's at the end of the film, and he has the vast majority of screen time. It's his story. He learns to see this character, and there are other characters we get to know. But it is Judas who is the heart of the film. It's all about well, him. What That's would, what makes what I would it t- sort of interesting. It's not a great film. It's okay. Uh, if anybody is, you would want to single out, it would be Daniel, I would say. But yeah. it's, 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 they didn't quite get under the skin of this guy's betrayal and how he, or his sense of struggle, because 
he's supposed to be betraying them, but he's starting to see that, you know, they're not, they're not like they're being portrayed and the government's doing terrible things. And he has no one to talk to about that. So it's very hard to dramatize it because he has a white FBI agent, uh, but he can't talk to him because, you know, you don't tell white people, hey, you're full of crap. <laughs> that doesn't happen in that era. So there's no one for him to talk to about what he's going through. We just have to all get it through his eyes. And it's a good performance, but you just can't really dramatize the sensual conflict, which is him you know, getting to appreciate them and betraying them at the same time. So I think that's kind of why it doesn't catch fire. Well, you know, I think uh, if my guidance to Daniel Kaluuya would be the next time you're in a movie, okay, and your your character is in the title of the movie, make sure your 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 character's name comes before the word and. So if it was Black Messiah and Judas, you'd be lead actor. Who cares? He's going to win the Oscar. Army, ha Army Hammer is not going to win a Tony, however. He has left the Broadway show The Minutes by Tracy Letts. That was a starry cast coming to Broadway. It was about to open, and it all fell apart. And now he's had sexual misconduct charges from left and right, and yet another project he is leaving. So that is not happening. Army Hammer is stepping away from that Broadway show. No words on when that show will actually come back to Broadway. Probably the fall or next spring, I imagine. But sexual misconduct and other problems continue to crop up in Hollywood. The Hollywood Reporter did a cover story on the long, well-known abusive behavior of producer Scott Rudin, who, ha, 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 you know, treats his assistants like scum of the earth and is incredibly abusive physically and mentally. And people have known about this for decades, what a monster he is in tr treating the people he works with and other people. And we had the, remember that uh, Sony break-in where they got the emails? We had hateful yes. comments from him about different actors and directors, very dismissive, hateful stuff, which he said, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't that funny, I guess. But anyway, H Howler Reporter did a big cover story. He had four assistants on record by name, numerous others testifying to this. He himself has talked about, well, you know, some are thin-skinned, uh, but the thick-skinned ones know, you know, it's for the best. And he has a long well, history no, what of he a said lot is, of he, he said, you know, the thick-skinned ones, the ones who actually make it through, they tend to do quite well in the yeah, industry. Screw the ones, you. Yeah, screw you. You make people's lives miserable and drive them out of the industry and say, see, they didn't have what it takes. You're not supposed to have to take abusive behavior to succeed in any career. So screw you, Scott Rudin. But guess what? Friends of mine saw this story, and some of them shrugged and were like, "Yeah, well, it's not sex. He's not a sexual predator, you know. No yeah, one's well, going to no care. That, no one's going to care." Many years ago, uh, in 1994, I had moved to Los Angeles and I was looking for a job, and I got a job at William Morris for an agent, and I found out that I was the 21st assistant. I remember on, this on his desk that year. It was April of that year, right? And I stayed for three months on that desk and, and basically would have continued. Uh, it was very difficult. And I remember actually, and maybe I've told this story before, but there was a movie that came out around that time in 1995 called Swimming with Sharks. Right. It's inspired by Scott Rudin. Everybody knew that. Well, it was inspired by four people, one of whom, it turns out, I was didn't know this at the time. <laughs> was the, yeah. And the, the weekend that the movie comes out, it's a, it does quite well. I'm frantically doing work at my desk, and all of a sudden, I see a pair of legs in front of my desk, and I just kind of look up from my desk, and there is Kevin Spacey. And he just looked at me, and he went, how'd I do? <laughs> and he just kind of slinked off. And I thought, okay, that was kind of funny. That's kind of... Now, 
Isn't that uh, funny? Was, You've crossed over from workplace abuse to sexual misconduct all in one story. <laughs> Hello, Kevin Spacey. <laughs> so what wound up happening is uh, I was taken off that desk and it was a very, it was a very Scott Rudin-esque desk. Let's put it that way. Uh-huh. Uh, because the, the agency was concerned that, well, nobody's lasted this long. He might crack. He might break. He might go postal. Uh, and Meaning you. Uh, yeah, me. Uh, and then about, I don't know, six months later, I was looking to leave a, the agency world and move into the, you know, development world. And one of the positions available was with Scott Rudin. Why is that? Because there was always a position available with Scott Rudin. <laughs> it was like, you know, Brian Grazer is another person where everybody knows there's going to be a position available because he goes through assistance like, you know, like they're because he's, he's a hateful, abusive boss. Right. And so, but this was the kind of thing I actually did get that job and I purposefully did not take it because oh, I, said, I would you know never what? have worked for Scott, for Joel, so for Scott Rudin or Joel Silver for that matter. Yeah, yeah. I just said, you know what? I, I just, I couldn't do it. I knew what he was like. I had heard what he was like. I had been on the other side of phone calls where he was treating both me and others like that. I thought, you know what? I just, I don't need it. Right. It just didn't. No one, and so no I didn't one should it. have to deal with that. No one ever. You shouldn't work with someone like that. The problem was seeing, you know, they, they said, oh, let's get, let's get Sperling out of there. The problem they should have said is, hey, we've got this ridiculous agent who's gone through 21 people in a year. Maybe he's the problem. Maybe you should get rid of him. But they don't ever do that. And that's what's well, going to happen. Eventually. They did well, eventually. That's, that's good. But that's what's going to happen with Scott Rudin because the AP just did a story and said, you know what? This big expose telling everybody what they already know was followed by crickets. Not a single person of power has said a word about this. The only people who have spoken up are people who've spoken out about sexual misconduct, like uh, Anthony Rapp and Rose McGowan and a handful of others, like Tony actress, uh, uh, stage actress Daisy Egan from the secret garden, but essentially all the big powerful people that work with Scott Rudin, all the major players, all the studios and the producers and the theater owners and the big, big marquee names, not a single word from anyone and nothing's going to happen. The problem is that when you allow conduct like that, you are also going to create an atmosphere that allows sexual misconduct. You can't say, well, we object to sexual misconduct, but this is okay. Or like, it's not our concern. That the one leads to the other. When you allow people to behave like monsters, you are allowing all sorts of things to happen. You can't pick and choose what it is. Joel Silver, David O. Russell, uh, uh, Scott Rudin, your agent. There's a lot of them, and they deserve to have see their day come and go. But it ain't going to happen, is it? I'll never forget in, in talking to George Clooney actually on uh, the. I think it was for the set of The Perfect Storm, and we were talking about his uh, oh, right. role in. Three Kings and right. how he, he said, look, you know, I don't know David O. Russell, you know, maybe he's a great guy on that film. He was not. And yes, it got very public. What happened? He said, but at the end of the day, this movie, every movie I do is just going to wind up another DVD on my shelf. So there's no reason why we have to go through pain and anguish and, and to, to get these things done. There's no right. reason to mistreat people while it's happening. Right. You don't need to, you don't need to be a tortured artist who abuses everyone around you to create great work. There are plenty of people who do it without that. And, but David O. Russell, the only director, perhaps, to have two films with all four you know, lead performances, two lead and two supporting, nominated for Oscars. Again and again, his movies get nominated for Oscars and make money. He continues to be abusive on sets. People continue to work with him. So it's not going to change. And, well, uh, you know, like, I'm abusive to you. You don't stop working with me. <laughs> the... Uh, 
the um yeah we were talking before about a lot of the streaming deals you know they used to end up as dvds on your shelf now they end up as a film in your library on your streaming service <laughs> and so looking yeah, at streaming services we have a combined chart for the week of march 8th through 14th you can also look at last week's chart last week the week before the first week in march that's when coming to america debuted on amazon it became their first number one on the combined chart of the most popular things on streaming that we can measure. So last week it was number one. This week it's number one again. Coming to America is at the top of the charts. 770 million minutes were watched of that movie this week. Very poor reviews, I have to say. But there you go. That's an original movie. Amazon's first number one on the chart. You're looking through the list. Everything else in the top 10 is from Netflix. The other nine shows are from Netflix and one, two, just two of them are original. So the other, so we got one original from Amazon, two original from Netflix, and seven acquired TV shows. Uh, so there you go. And when you look at just the chart for the movies, five of the 10 movies that are on the top 10 charts for movies, those are originals too. So that's good to see. So three of the top 10 overall are originals. Half of the movies being watched that are the most popular are originals. So licensing content works. You can still make lots of money. But originals help, too. That brings people to your service. That's why you'll see Coming to America at number one and Ginny and Georgia, that Netflix sort of a Gilmore Girls type drama. That's at number two. And then you got lots of acquired series. Oh, there's the third one. I'm sorry. There, there's the crown. Yeah, down there, like number six. And then you've got lots of acquired shows like Criminal Minds, Grey's Anatomy, Coco Melon, NCIS, Shits Creek, and Heartland. So that's our combined chart for this week. You can compare this week and last week where one division was still on the charts. That's dropped off the, um, the top 10 overall. But lots of activity. People are still streaming stuff. And like you said, Netflix played buku dollars for Knives Out 2 and 3. Does that seem a smart move to you? Well, it, it seems like a lot of money for just two films, to me at least. I mean, I, I'm, call, call me crazy. Yeah. Ray and the Last Dragon, we got some notes from that last week and this week. It looks, you know, right now, uh, this was last week, was it? Um, Ray and the Last Dragon racked up 330, 55 million minutes when it debuted. So if everyone watched it once, that means it's 107 it about, minutes. Right. That means about 2.4 million views if they watched the entire movie beginning to end. That would be equal to about the film. $72 million. Right. In its opening week. But of course, they only get half of that. So that would be sort of like them. That's what they would take home if the movie had opened to $140 million at the box office. So Disney looks at those numbers and say, hey, we made $70 million off of it. Hmm, in a way, you know, from that premium viewing of $30 a person. So maybe those numbers make sense to them. I don't think so, because it seems like they fall off the chart pretty quickly. Everybody who's willing to pay 30 bucks pays it right away. Otherwise, there's nobody paying week two or week three because they know in a few months it's going to be free, right? Right. I mean, I wouldn't pay to see it now. It's going to be free in a like a like, I don't know. Where are we at? Like four weeks in, it's going to be free in two months. So you don't even know that. And that's why I think the industry is more focused on Windows than the average person. The average person does not expect necessarily everything to be available to them immediately. If they wait 45 days to see Godzilla versus Kong, that's nothing. That's the blink of an eye. They will not be like, ah, oh, I can't believe I have to wait 45 days, a month and a half. Big deal. I really don't think it's uh, something that people care about. Oh, wait a second. I see what you're doing there. Ha! I mean, I was about to go down a whole Windows Roads, but you stopped me. You stopped me Woo! because it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. 
Our first story is about comedian John Stewart. He is returning to TV. And by TV, I mean Apple TV, to be exact. His new weekly series will be called The Problem with John Stewart. Insert joke here. I have a million. I mean, why would you call? It's like, you know, I'll I, tell I, you I t- the problem for John Stewart. <laughs> I, you know, when Nicolas Cage came in and gave us the, his script when I was working for him for Gone in 60 Seconds, he said, I'm thinking of doing this movie. All of us in the office were like, are you kidding? You can already see the reviews for this. This movie will be gone in 60 seconds. Uh, we were all wrong. The movie did fine. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah you I was know. about to say. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Uh, you, can anyway. change, you can always change the title. It just isn't a good project. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's going to tackle, uh, Stuart's show, that is, is going to tackle one topic per week, which means after a decade or so away from television, John Stewart is returning to TV with apparently the John Oliver show. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, full credit to our in-house film critic, Aaron Rich, for that joke. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yes. No, it seems a big whoop when you, when you put it that way. I'm sure he'll do it well. Be interested to see, but it does feel like a bit of a, oh, okay. You know, oh, you waited all this time and now you're not only are you not doing the old show, but you're doing something new, very similar to what one of your old folk did. Huh, okay. <laughs> Just feels very much been there, done that. Yeah. When I read that sentence, you know, anyway, it's going to tackle one topic a week. I was like, wait a second. Isn't that what John? <laughs> and then, of course, that was the next. Yeah. So it's. Uh, in any case, uh, let's talk about Lil Nas X, who oh, knows that. how to make a splash. This guy, let me tell you, Lil Nas might have proven to be a one-hit wonder with his left-field mashup of country and hip-hop called Old Town Road. Remember that song? Mm-hmm. Remember that? Gotta yeah. go down to the Old Town yep. Road. He's not having it, by the no, way. The no. artist proved he knows how to garner attention in this social media age with his new single, Montero, Call Me By Your Name. The title, of, of course, is a references, it references a gay film, and the lavish music video is unabashedly queer with so many visual influences that art critics have parsed them out for people so they can figure out wh- you know, what is referencing what. Plus, he garnered far-right outrage with scenes where Lil, as I like to call him, Lil, uh, he does a lap dance with Satan. That's right, Satan, because how else are you going to get Tucker Carlson to promote your new song? <laughs> If that wasn't enough, he partnered with a collective to release so-called Satan sneakers because everybody needs those. Now, (laughs) these sneakers contained a drop of human blood in the heel and were limited to just, get this, only 666 Interesting number, yes. Yeah, I don't know why. I just, anyway, uh, Nike then uh, said, I'm sorry, what? No, they sued over the refurbishing of one of its sneakers. And Lil Nas X happily made nice after mountains of press and an immediate sellout of the sneaks. <laughs> oh, and his song debuted, by the way, because yeah, this was all about a song. Remember that? Yeah, it debuted at number one on Billboard's Heart. Heart? It, it was not only a Heart 100. It was a Hot 100. It was a Hot 100. You're right. Yeah, debuted at number one. Big Re- deal, big whoop. Well, it's a, it's a it's a smart deal. You know, he knows what he's yeah. doing. He knows how to get attention. And in the last two weeks, Taylor Swift fighting back against her record la- her old record label. She re-recorded her album Fearless, her first uh, winner for best album. And it is to say it's Fearless Redux is to under my God, it's like exactly like the old album. There were also six bonus tracks, but that's kind of interesting. And Lil Nas was number one for one week, but he got a lot of attention. The number one song this week. Leave the door open by Silk Sonic. That's the collective by Bruno Mars and Anderson Pock. Cool to see. I like that song. Now, here's a question. So you, you're saying I didn't listen to the new uh, 
the new album, the new Redux album by Taylor Swift. Okay. But I wondered, you know, because she is, you know, a different age than 16 when she's, she's singing. She's singing differently. She she recreates a younger, more naive, her, her vocals from that era down to the giggles and the laughs and individual tracks. She really worked hard to sort of put herself in a mind frame of where she was then. It's really intended to be like, no, no, this is pretty much that last, to the point where some of viewers were like, are they like checking to make sure she didn't just put out the old album and pretend it was new? Cause it sounds so much like it kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, the one thing I did here is I guess they turned Colby Calais mic up uh, or whatever her name, Colby Callet or whatever her name is, uh, saying backup. And everybody's like on what, like when we could never hear her before, but on this one, we can totally hear her. <laughs> I forgot to say the number one album again is, is Justin Bieber's album peaches and little Nas X does top the worldwide billboard charts with Montero. So that's a hit all over the world. So, uh, you know, I was driving over the past weekend, uh, driving, I had a six hour drive and I was with my daughter in the car. She wanted to listen to Spotify, the mega hit mix channel, you know, the the charts Mm -hmm. and literally every single song was, well, I can't say that on this show. I can't say any of the words because they were just, it was one profane word after another. And I thought, okay, when you're rhyming profane words, maybe you're not writing a song anymore. Duck. Luck. Truck. Yeah. Unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, speaking of unbelievable, the Supreme Court. Big deal or big... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, The Supreme Court overturned a lower court. That's kind of what they do. That's kind of the business they're in. And they let stand new rules set by the FCC that significantly relax media ownership restrictions in the United States. What could go wrong? In other words, media companies can get bigger. And when they're not getting bigger, they can get bigger and bigger. (laughs) Uh, the decision was unanimous, and it said the old rules were set so long ago that they don't remotely apply to the modern media landscape or the FCC's goals of encouraging competition, fairness, and the like. Justin Clarence Thomas concurred by wondering why anyone was worried about women or minority voices in the first place. Does he own a mirror? Anyway, uh, this means companies are free to own TV stations and newspapers in the same market. They won't have limits on how many radio and TV stations one company can own, and they won't place requirements that a market have eight indie TV stations before a company could own more than one. I want to ask Big Dealer Big Whoop, but can we go to the part where this is such a bad idea, Uh, I can't even begin to talk about this. This could be been inside baseball. Yeah. I mean, this is... Well, let's just say we know Chief Justice John Roberts recently declared voter suppression was a thing of the past. That was in the Citizens United ruling, a now infamous ruling showing how absurd it was since we have hundreds of restrictions being placed on voters even as we speak. This ruling is the equivalent to that for media ownership. It's a, it's a nightmare. You know, Companies can now own, control 50, 60, 70% of the airwaves in the country. That's not healthy. It's not good for democracy. It's bad for competition and capitalism. It's not good when one company controls too much of a market, certainly in the media. It's just a nightmare. But let's remember, this is a unanimous decision. I was just going to ask about that. Well, there are three justices who are considered liberal, put on the courts by uh, you know, Democrats. However, almost no justices are liberal when it comes to business. There's been a decades-long trend towards, you know, they don't care about antitrust. Uh, all that matters is if prices are lowered, a company is fine. Doesn't matter what else they do. There's nothing else to worry about except 
Is the price lower if one company controls that? You know, this is just the mindset of of business law has been so right wing and conservative for so long. There are no justices on the court who are progressive or liberal when it comes to business. And this media ownership, this is just a just a disaster. It's it's frightening. It's really bad for the future. Hopefully, the Biden administration will will say, you know, they. they just because it's legal doesn't mean they have to continue with them because these are rulings that came into place under the Trump administration. Hopefully there's some support for saying, okay, yeah, we can do that, but we're not going to change the rules. You know, let them come and sue and say, you have to change the rules. See what happens then. Well, now there's no script, no cast, and by the way, no opening date, but even the possibility of seeing game of thrones on stage ignited a ton yes you're probably already in line i knew it uh the press on this i i mean the ink spilled unbelievable yes winter is coming to the west end or broadway or somewhere i don't know where but but that somewhere will have a stage it's going to be a play not a musical and the story is set at a tournament taking place about 16 years before the beginning of the tv series Major characters are all present there, but uh, of course, they're younger at the time, so it's kind of a prequel. And the events of the tournament set the seeds for the war to come, the war which was well-documented by HBO, in fact. <laughs> One of their uh, lesser-known so, documentary series. It's quite good. You should check it out. Yes, yes. I, I especially like the parts with the dragons because uh, I liked how they were able to capture the dragons in that kind of National Geographic way. Anyway, a big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop because there are no dragons in this story. The dragons don't come back until Game of Thrones in season one or two or whatever the heck that was. So what the hell? No dragons? Yes, it's a, it is farther along. There are a lot of projects that get attention just because people say, oh, that could happen. This actually does have, they have a setting, they have a storyline, they're working with everybody, there are going to be people doing this, this will happen, it's going to happen, maybe they'll do it well, who knows, but to be fair to all the media attention, this is a real project actually moving forward, even though there is no script and no cast and no director, this baby is going to happen, so, you know, fair fair play. Well, here's the thing, George R. R. Martin, you know, I, I would say, hey dude, you know, don't write the script for this one, okay? No, he's not. You he's have not. to finish your darn. You got to finish this thing. <laughs> finish it. He is not. He is not working. He's just working on seventeen other projects. Well, leave him alone. Whatever time he needs, let him do it. All right. Well, maybe he's hat shopping. I don't. I don't know. Uh, the women's prize, big deal or no? I'm kidding. Of course, the women's prize is standing by its nomination of the trans writer Tori Peters for the award it bestows, the most visible. In the world focusing on women. In literature, Peter, I, in literature, in literature I should say, yeah, yes. Of course, yeah. Peter's published Destinate, oh, well, sorry, I almost said Destination. No, no, no. It's called Detransition Baby. So it's Detransition, comma, Baby. A wildly acclaimed comedy of manners dealing with a transgender woman who is helping raise the baby of her former partner. All I can say is Hollywood. Uh, I, don't, I was going to give you Tori Peters' number, but... I don't have it. They already, it's already should, been, I'm sure it's already been acquired. Um, yeah, okay. Well, Peters was thrilled to make the long list, but was unsurprised there was a backlash. Indeed, a group calling itself the Wild Woman Writing Club. Why isn't Wild Women Writing Club? I guess it's just one person. I don't know. Anyway, that club denounced it, saying the nomination was, quote, making male writers eligible for the sole major women's literary prize, end quote. And that with Peters on the list, 
the award ceased to be the women's prize and became simply the fiction prize. Some of the signatories used pseudonyms and the ref they referenced the criticism of J.K. Rowling for her anti-trans comments. As for Peter, she told the LA Times, everybody wants a prize to be unadulterated pleasure. Because I'm trans, I don't get that purity of recognition. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, you tell me, what, what did you think when you read about this? Uh, you know, I think once uh, you're living as a woman, you're pretty much, I mean, if you've got to take all the hits for being, you know, trans and being, hey, you're, you're, you're of that gender at that point. I mean, do they, do these people complaining really think that, that Tori Peters said, you know what, I'm going to, I don't know if they've had uh, surgery, but I'm going to live my life like this or even have surgery and do all this work to transition just like, so they could gain a literary prize, you know, really? <laughs> I just, I just, and at the and it's not easier to win a women's prize than a man's prize or prizes that aren't gender specific because there are a lot of great female writers. So it would be dismissive to say, oh, it'll like, you might argue, oh, they'll have an unfair advantage in sports. Again, nobody transitions just to like, so kid can play, you know, lacrosse in high school. You know, you're crazy if you think that. But anyway, in this case, you're all writers. It's a level playing field. They identify as a woman. I mean, where is your anger coming from? It's very strange. Very sad, I have to say. Plus, you know, look, I mean, you know, Hemingway, that new documentary on Hemingway, you know, look at that. There's a little. Well, uh, he didn't identify you know, as a woman. He, he did like to wear women's clothes. He did have some. He's always had an undercurrent of, of unresolved gay issues going on in his life. And he had a son who did transition or was transitioning through the end of their lives as a woman. It was a very complicated journey for one of his sons. But uh, complicated life, that's for sure. But that's different from identifying as a woman, that's for sure. Yes. Well, you know, sometimes when some businesses zig, fashion label Bottega Venata. How do you pronounce that? Bottega Veneta? They yeah. zag. They're right. Yeah. Yeah. First, amidst the pandemic, it was one of the few designer brands to actually increase sales. That's kind of nice. Then it raised eyebrows when the company's Instagram account disappeared, to which I'd said you, you were probably hacked because nobody's deleting their Instagram account these days. Okay. <laughs> There's no way. There's no way you did that. Well, Instagram has become a primary way for fashion labels to stay visible in the public eye with a constant stream of images and videos and the like. That's why. Somebody must have hacked your account, dude. Check it out. Uh, anyway, dumping Instagram was kind of shocking, and now their plan is definitely clear. Bottega Veneta is walking away from social media, and they're launching. And now, Michael, I hope you're sitting down, because uh -huh. if you're not, we're they're launching a magazine. What? Now, do they even own a new, do, do, they have, do they even read newspapers or magazines? Because if they did, they'd find out magazines are dead. Print media is dead. However, their magazine is going to be called Issue. It's a quarterly digital product with everything from fashion shoots to features to things like a newly commissioned music video for the Missy Elliott classic Hot Boys, featuring clothes by Bottega, of course, Natch, you know. British designer Daniel Lee brought Bottega to new heights and said the sadness the or sadness sameness of social media, along with the bullying nature of online correspondence, were reasons he decided to do something more thoughtful, more progressive. Will it work? And is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, in other words, a major company that uses social media a lot said, enough, we're not using social media. It could be a big deal if other people caught on and it became less cool to spend all day long scrolling through Instagram and Twitter, you know, especially in an in area that really depends 
on social media for a lot of their attention and visibility. So I think it's cool. It's worked before for lots of fashion labels have done this. The store Abercrombie and Fitch, they had catalogs in the 90s that I was very very pleased by those were good catalogs um but uh you know you can stand out that way do something different that's the way to go if everyone does it then maybe somebody will go back to social media but it's it can only be a good trend do something special and thoughtful stand out that way offer something to value rather than another image to pass by for five seconds i think it's a great move so monocle magazine has no social media they you know i think tyler brule the editor-in-chief has said, why would I need to be on Twitter? I've got a magazine. Exactly. I don't need to- <laughs> exactly. Um, and I heard Twitter recently uh, was dubbed uh, like the place where journalists and podcasters go and they want to know what other journalists and podcasters are saying because it's like the only people on there are journalists and podcasters. So are you talking about the satirical magazine? Oh, you're talking about the UK magazine, Monocle, the, the lifestyle yeah. magazine? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Now, this other story we did last week or the okay. last time. Did we? No, it's an addition yeah. to it. No, there's news. There's new news. Keep reading. Well, so now this next story we kind of touched on earlier, a, uh, and by earlier I mean a, in episode 535, a group of anonymous songwriters called out pop stars for seizing publishing credit for songs they didn't contribute to at all. It's a tale as old as time, as we said uh, last week, but the problem is more serious now because songwriters make less money than ever. Songs aren't selling anymore. They're streaming, and that's pennies on the dollar for the people who write them. We said the pact, as the group called itself, was no big deal. If songwriters went public, then it would be a big deal. Well, guess what? These songwriters, they're going public. First, some 15 big names came forward. They didn't single out any artists. They didn't point any fingers, but they do have songwriting credits with the likes of Justin Bieber, Dua Lipa, Selena Gomez, Ariana Grande, and the Jonas Brothers, Britney Spears, and many more, all of whom you know all of those lyrics come from those people. You know it. Come on. Uh, since the dam broke, hundreds of more songwriters have signed the pledge. So now, is it a big deal or a big whoop? Well, now I'm going to move the bar. I'm going to move the goalposts. I'm going to say it's still a big whoop. Now we need what? now we need artists to sign on and say, I pledge never to take songwriting credits I don't deserve again, or say I did this in the past and I was wrong. Now, Britney Spears has written and contributed to some of her biggest hits. We know that she is not just a puppet who demands credit for every song that's written. Uh, Other artists do. It gets complicated. You're in the room together. They draw on your life. And, you know, if you're just in the room, they say, are you influencing what people come up? You know, it gets complicated. But people know when they're wrong and when they're just demanding a piece of publishing, even though they had nothing to do with the song or virtually nothing. Or, you know, what's there's a slogan in the industry, change a word, get a third right? That's the joke. You change one word in a song and then you demand third of the publishing. So that ends. If some of these artists come forward and say that, then it will really be a big deal. But this is getting bigger. Hundreds of songwriters have put their necks out and said, you know what, this is wrong and we're not doing it in the future. So let's hope the momentum keeps building. Well, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, we already talked about politics earlier in the show. We talked about teachers unions. No, no, we're cutting that out. <laughs> no, you're cutting out all of that. That was 20 minutes. They don't need to hear. So, okay, you well, didn't hear if you about didn't hear, <laughs> yeah, so if you didn't hear that, then we, we talked about politics on our own time and, uh, and then we cut it out and then you didn't hear it, but you are going to hear about politics now because Hollywood really. They just want to make money, okay? 
But politics keeps getting in the way in both China and here in the U.S. Major corporations are being forced to take sides on voting rights issues, human rights issues, and much, much more on the bright side. It's also a chance to make some more money. That's right. First, let's go to China. Here, let me tackle this and you can comment. All right. China, of course, has long cracked down on any corporation that makes the slightest criticism criticism of the Chinese government. That's not new, but it's come to a head over the increasing spotlight on the grotesque human rights abuses of that country's Muslim minority known as the Uyghurs, who are, unfortunately for a lot of people, involved in enslaved labor for uh, getting cotton which becomes to be in almost every piece of clothing you have, uh, putting together of electronics, children, and other enslaved people. So it's, it's not good. If you own a cotton T-shirt, chances are an enslaved person was involved in its making, if not a small child. Now, this has come to a head, and a lot of international corporations face pressures and have said, gee, we, we don't really want our T-shirts made. And they're making an effort to say, maybe we'll get our cotton from other sources, and maybe we'll do something. Just expressing concern gets you in trouble. When H&M, a big fashion chain, expressed concern about where its cotton comes from, China disappeared the company overnight. The websites for H&M aren't available online in China, and indeed, any mention of H&M has pretty much been scrubbed from the internet. That's the internet that the Chinese people can access legally in that country. Of course, they're behind the Great Wall, the Great Firewall, so they don't see the same content you and I would. In fact, there are physical stores of H&M in China. Those haven't been shut down yet. But when you even use a car riding app and say, I want to go to H&M, and you try to look it up, it's gone. It doesn't exist. You have to put in the address or put in a building nearby and go there from your car driving app just to get to H&M. That's crazy. And of course, this is the problem. Similar crackdowns are taking place with Nike and other companies, and that puts Hollywood into a really bad position. If even a single actor or writer or director connected to an upcoming blockbuster speaks up, that movie could lose the chance to open in the world's number one market. So not only does Hollywood have to worry about every single artist it does business with, but of course, it won't even make a movie that puts China in even a slightly unflattering light Hollywood must hate this, mustn't they? Well, yeah, it's not anything new, though. I mean, this has been going on. But this even, is a big, this is a heavy new crack. Well, now, now it's kind of, yeah, now it's, they're getting more heavy handed. Uh, Hong Kong, the whole situation in Hong Kong does not help at all when you're fighting for voting rights in Georgia here in the United States. And you're basically letting, you know, people be put in jail for saying, you know, we should vote. We should be a democracy. And, and they're being put in jail in Hong Kong when you're going to China to do business. It kind of looks somewhat hypocritical, but it's it's nothing new that it's just really under the microscope it's getting, now. And, and, the, and the abuses in China are becoming more to the forefront. We've known for a long time that they have horrible working conditions. We had employees throwing themselves out of windows at Apple factories, at Foxconn, where they put together Apple and other products of electronics. But now people are like, wow, my clothes are really made with, you know, people being abused and mistreated because of their religion? I don't like that. So it's getting harder to turn the other way and just sort of ignore it. Uh, we know for years, Richard Gere lost his leading man career, basically, by speaking up against the treatment of the Tibet and the Dalai Lama. Now we're seeing the same thing with Uyghurs in China. It's it's very difficult. What is Hollywood supposed to do? It already abandoned Richard Gere and simply refused to cast him in any major feature film after he spoke up about that injustice. Now what? Any random actor that criticized China can create a problem. Look at Georgia. 
Now what's happening in Georgia? They don't want to deal with China. They sure as heck don't want to get involved in politics in America. They just want to make money. But a string of companies like Delta and Coca-Cola have condemned a voter suppression bill after it passed. Uh huh. None have pledged to stop funding politicians or the PACs that support those politicians that try to keep minorities and Democrats and everybody from voting. Right. Everyone runs touchy feeling ads during Martin Luther King Day or to celebrate John Lewis or encouraging people to vote. But now people say, oh, really? You support the right to vote? What are you doing about Georgia? And they're putting pressure on them to speak out. And that means where do you make your TV shows? Where do you make your movies? Georgia offers big tax incentives. The Walking Dead famously is filmed in Georgia. Lots of stuff is filmed in Georgia. I have friends with restaurants in Georgia where film crews come and have lunch there. Their business is really benefiting from the fact that Georgia has a healthy TV and film industry. Tyler Perry Studios are in Georgia. Now, people in Georgia so far are saying, oh, don't punish us because of them. You know, speak out and do it in other ways. But one big movie has already pulled out. Will Smith's movie for Apple has pulled out of its shoot in Georgia. They're probably going to move the shoot to Louisiana. This will add $15 million to the movie's budget because that's how much Georgia was giving them in tax breaks. However, the movie is a period piece during the war, you know, during enslavement, where Will Smith's character was escaping life in chains. And the events actually took place in Louisiana. And they thought, we can't make this movie in Georgia. This movie in particular, we can't make in Georgia. We can't argue we're going to change things in other ways. And you know what? That opens up a lot of opportunity. New Jersey, they're already making noise and looking to poach some of Georgia's movie and TV production amidst all this scandal. Major League Baseball, they pulled the All-Star game from Atlanta. They said, we're not doing business there. We've seen this happen with other states. When they lose sports and when they lose business, big business moves to other states, that puts a lot of pressure on that state. But again, this is not something Hollywood wants to have to think about, is it? No, because, you know, it's kind of like, you know, frankly, let's go to MLB, Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. The one of the reasons they moved out was because uh, the commit as the commissioner, uh, Rob Manfred said, you know what, what's going to happen is you'll have half the the players, either, you know, a third of the players won't show up because it's in Georgia. So you've already got that problem. And then you've got the players that do show up constantly. Yeah, constantly going to be asked, well, what's your position? What's your position? What's your position? So there's no way to the whole thing will be over overrun by by that. So instead, we'll just put it's supposed to be a baseball game. We'll just put the baseball game in another place like Colorado. Right. You know, a, be- a better position would be to say, you know what? It's wrong and we don't want to do business there. That would have been a better way to put it rather than it's too much hassle. How about saying proactively saying, well, actually, we support the right to vote. That's what a democracy is based on. And we think this law goes way, way too far and is based on a lie. And our players and our unions are not going to stand for that. And that's why we're not doing business there. Isn't that, was, that how they started? Wasn't that the first thing they said? Well, I'm just and then, I'm and reacting then to what people, you, how you described. Oh, OK. You know, there you go. Yeah. I think the first thing they said was that, and then it became kind of like okay, on a practical you keep asking, level, yeah, yeah, on a, yeah, on a practical level. Well, look, you know, if if you don't like the the, the real reason, then how about this reason? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason we have the obituary section at the end because people's lives come to an end and people die, and so at the end of our show, we celebrate some of those people. Showbiz lawyer Howard Weitzman died at the age of 81. He represented the Michael Jackson estate and apparently everybody else. Every studio he worked for at one point, talent agencies, lots of big stars. Did he ever cross your path, Sperling? He was always on the power list of most important lawyers, that's for sure. Yeah, but only in passing, you know, only in like, oh, it's going over to to their law firm and, Mm -hmm. you know, you'd hear him on a call every now and again, but uh, not... 
not where I was like, you know, get me Howard Weitzman. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, he, 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 he shot to fame pretty much as a celebrity in his own right when he was the lawyer for carmaker John DeLorean, who was involved in drug selling and this scandal. Uh, Howard Weitzman pitched it as government entrapment. But the fact is, he held press conferences on the courtroom steps outside the courtroom, which is an image so familiar to me that doesn't even register as something you would do or not. It's like, well, yeah, of course. So what? Apparently, according to many obits, Howard Weitzman kind of pioneered that visual and that image, being on the courtroom steps, holding the press conference there right outside the corridors of justice. And he was so good at explaining complex legal issues in a way favorable to his client and so good at answering questions and being pithy and good on the air that the media loved him. And he became a celebrity in his own right. And they loved quoting him and became empathetic to his client because he did such a good job of presenting the case. So he kind of invented the courtroom step scene, which I've seen a gazillion times in every movie and TV show and in real life that I can think of. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah I he, mean, he, he also repped OJ uh, when that murder happened. And uh, he's, first he said, well, he was on a flight at the time. I'm like, uh, no, he wasn't. He's like, oh, um, I've got other stuff. I'm not really a murder guy. I'm going to go do other things. So he, he, yeah. he, he, he <laughs> amscrayed from the OJ Simpson team, but not soon enough to not be portrayed in the miniseries, The People vs. OJ. Apparently well, I think, I think he said, OJ is bad. He's bad. He's real, real bad. Yeah, that, that's not good. Yeah, so he, <laughs> he represented Michael Jackson. That's oh, why. Oh, yeah, he did. He, he represented the estate. I think he also repped Michael Jackson during his lifetime at some points, but I'm not sure on that. Anyway, he died peacefully at home. God bless him. And he was listening to music of some of his favorite artists. I love an obit that includes a, a, a playlist. Apparently, he was listening to Neil Young, Led Zeppelin, and Joni Mitchell. It sounds like a good way to go to me. And, and writer Annie Bates, the creator of Square Pegs and a pioneering writer on Saturday Night Live, died at the age of 74. She won an Emmy working at Saturday Night Live. She went up with a lot of crap as the first female contributing editor at National Lampoon Magazine. Then she and her write, then writing partner, Rosie Schuster, they reluctantly said, okay, we'll work on Saturday Night Live when the show was launching in its first season. They worked on it for the first five years. She won two Emmys and was nominated for three more. And then her crowning achievement, she went on to create the sitcom Square Pegs, the show that made Sarah Jessica Parker a star and is still fondly remembered today uh, as one of those shows that was gone too soon. Canceled after one season and it was wrong. It was an injustice, kind of like the freaks and geeks of its day. And she was a teacher and mentor at Chapman University since 2009. So a great life. Well, I, I and, and now our next uh, obituary is about James Hampton. I didn't really know a lot about him. Oh, well, you know, he's a journeyman actor, and he died of complications from Parkinson's at the age of 84. As I read about him, he became interesting to me. He took acting lessons from Sidney Lumet's father and from Leonard Nimoy, but he played the bungling bugler on the sitcom F Troop. I have never watched F Troop. It only ran for two seasons, 64 episodes, but they were rerun all the time. It was one of those, like, McHale's Navy, just one of those dumb, bungling, early 60s sitcoms with really lowbrow. And I just, I mean, I watched Gilligan's Island. I'm not proud, but I never watched F Troop. But he was in that. And then he appeared in a gazillion other things. But he appeared on an episode of Gunsmoke, and he made friends with Burt Reynolds, who had a recurring part on that show. And boom, 
A friendship lasted for a lifetime, and that led to James Hampton appearing in The Longest Yard, WW and the Dixie Dan Kings, as well as writing and or directing episodes of Burt's sitcom Evening Shade. So be nice to people, no matter where you are. You know, another actor, you know, can't can't hurt. He was on everything. Oh, you know what? I'm looking at his picture. Yeah, I do recognize yeah, him. Yeah, he was on everything. Oh, that guy. That guy. He was on The Rockford Files. He was the dad of Michael J. Fox and Teen Wolf. And he has great timing. In February, he published his memoir titled What? And Give Up Showbiz? <laughs> Well, speaking of giving up showbiz, rapper DMX died at the age of 50. That was a, a bit of a surprise. Oh, you know, he yeah. he had a heart attack uh, and I guess a bit of a stroke as well, from my understanding. He was one of the biggest names uh, of hip hop in, in the 1990s, although he was, you know, constantly dogged by addiction and health issues. That's right. His debut, It's Dark and Hell is Hot was huge. It debuted at number one when that was still a big thing, sold five million copies. His other really big album was, and then there was X, both hugely influential. So it's a, uh, and he appeared in a lot of movies and TV stuff. So he, he had quite the flourishing career as an actor and rapper, except for the health issues that dogged him his entire life. Very shame. But now, voiceover artist Mark Elliott dies at 81. He was the voice of Disney for decades, began in radio as a DJ. His first movie trailer was a voiceover for. Smokey and the Bandit, the Burt Reynolds flick. I'm, I'm, no, I see a thread here. Uh, I see, see a thread. I'm surprised James Hampton wasn't in, uh, wasn't in that one. I mean, well, you couldn't be in Smokey and the Bandit. Burt, what's wrong with you? He did radio spots for Star Wars on spec. Director George Lucas was trying to figure out how to sell the movie, and they didn't know what a funny, silly, broad, they didn't know what to do. And so they're like, can you help us out here? And so he just kept re-recording stuff until they found the one they wanted to do, and then they kept him, and he did the radio spots. Then he did the goodbye. Funny. Yeah, funny. Yeah, in a know. world where yeah, your father you... becomes the Dark Lord, <laughs> I think it's more like R two D two and C three PO. You know, goofy. Oh, okay. The, the, he also did the voiceover for the Goodbye Girl on the mid late seventies. All three were smash hits, of course, and he was off and running. He was asked in nineteen seventy seven to do the voiceover for a reissue of Cinderella. That's it. Just like James Hampton bumped into Burt Reynolds on the set, and Burt wasn't even the star of the show, and they became friends. Mark Elliott, the voiceover artist was say, hey, can you do, we're doing a reissue of Cinderella. They asked him to do the voiceover, and it was perfect. He had, he had that just Midwestern Americana voice that just sort of blended into the background, didn't call attention to itself. That started a decades-long relationship with Disney. He would be like, and now our feature presentation. You've heard his voice a million times and never really thought about it, which can be a really good thing because when you do a voice and it's too distinctive, that kind of gets in the way. He was great. He did the Chariots of Fire, and this is cool. He did the voiceover for the uh, trailers for the last episode of mash so long farewell and amen one of the most watched tv episodes of all time and he did the voice for like say goodbye to the people at mash and as soon as you hear that ad i was like oh my god i remember this ad because i remember watching that episode kind of cool and last minute breaking news director richard rush the director of the stuntman he died at the age of 92 the stuntman is a classic cult classic that people in hollywood absolutely love You've probably seen it, and if not, it's worth checking out. Yes, and you can check us out every week, for the most part. We're here, uh, you know, on on the interwebs. Uh, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, the Google Play Store. Or it's not the Google Play Store. It's like Google something else now. Google Podcasts, I think. Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify. We're on Spotify. We are on Spotify. So please check us out. And where you can, please rate and review the show on any one of those podcast aggregators. It helps us out when you do. 
Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us, ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call. You can leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle, and we're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is our, I guess, page where you can like us. Again, that information on our website, ShowbizSandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week is something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's iheartteachers.com. <laughs> and if you don't know what that's about, thank us. please see thank, thank you for editing it all out. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you can't f- follow any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on whatever that website was, why not uh, head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. And breaking, breaking news, theater unions all just released a condemnation of workplace harassment, bullying, and violent behavior. However, they don't name Scott Rudin by name. So they're like, it's really bad. It hurts business. It's bad for business. It's bad for creativity. But they don't even mention him by name. So, But at least SAG-AFTRA, the Actors' Equity Association, and the American Federation of Musicians Local 802, all are people deeply involved on Broadway where Scott Rudin does business all the time. And they're like, this is really bad, and everyone should be deeply alarmed. However, they didn't name Scott Rudin. So, a shame, but maybe it's the start of something.